0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on a hybrid edition of At The Movies. A private eye with Tourette's Syndrome investigates corruption in 1950s New York. I got something wrong with my head. That's the first thing to know. If? It's
2: like having glass in the brain. I can't stop picking things apart, twisting them around, reassembling them. Words and sounds, especially. It's like an itch that has to be scratched.
1: Kiwi KJ Apa stars in the true story of a Christian singer-songwriter who overcame, or you might say was inspired by family tragedy, to hit the big time.
0: I remember I prayed and prayed in this room for Josh to be born healthy. It didn't happen. Dad, I begged God to heal Melissa. What am I supposed to do with that?
1: And the great Brian Cox stars in a ten-year-old comedy about hijinks in a Norwegian rest home.
2: General, you need permission to
0: do almost everything in life. Yeah. What? But sometimes you have to do what's right.
1: I want to start this week with an apology. In one of those mix-ups that I think can only happen in this new world of streaming and video on demand, one of the films I reviewed last week disappeared from all the online services at about the same time that we went to air. Cora Eda's The Truth, which stars Catherine Deneuve and Juliette Binoche, was online for rental one moment and then withdrawn the next. It turns out that when the distributors of the film made it available for Australia, they left the box for New Zealand ticked at the same time, which is what you would usually do. Except there are other plans for this film, plans that will become apparent in the fullness of time. So, I apologise for recommending something that you can't actually see. That's not our policy on At The Movies. But we live in fast-moving and fast-changing times. And it's the kind of warning that applies across all of our greater reliance on digital downloads, streams, and subscriptions. Just because a film is there today, it doesn't mean it will still be there tomorrow. Rights can expire. Rights-holder strategies can change. For home viewing, the best way to guarantee that you can see a film when you want to is to buy a copy on physical media. I still do that, and my shelves are groaning under the weight of them all. But it is frustrating to invite chums over to watch a film on iTunes, Netflix, or Amazon Prime, and then find it isn't there anymore. And the same goes for films in cinemas or in festivals when they return. If you have a hankering to watch a specific film at the movies, don't dilly-dally or shilly-shally around. The one you want might have been replaced by something else by the time you finally get around to making a booking. Especially in these uncertain times, cinema owners can't afford to wait for word of mouth to build up an audience, so my advice is act now. I also want to direct you towards our show from the 25th of March. You can find it on the RNZ website still, where, because of the timing of the Level 4 lockdown, I reviewed a couple of films that no one could actually see. The French cop drama Les Miserables... And Queen and Slim, about a mismatched Tinder couple that end up on the run from the cops across the American South. Well, now you can see both of those films in quite a few cinemas across the country. I recommended them both then, and I recommend them both now.
0: Right
2: now, just the four of us. Does anybody know what Frank was into on this? He just said to meet him for a sit. He didn't even make it like it was a big thing. He was nervous, though. Nervous how? He wasn't nervous. Were you on that line, dumb shit? I'm telling you, I heard it. He was nervous. Nervous, Nellie! It was in his voice. He was trying to make a play on those guys. There's something going down a week from Thursday that's big, and they were not happy about what he found. Obviously, they whacked him for it. Crack whacker! No, I I don't think they meant to. I I think it was a mistake. When they shot him, I think they f***ed up. Now they're stuck looking for what he found.
1: Multiple Academy Award nominee Edward Norton hasn't been what you might call prolific recently. Since Birdman in 2014, his appearances have been limited to easy-paying voice work and cameos in films by pals, mostly Wes Anderson. In a recent interview, he spoke about his work investing in high-tech startups and his progressive and environmental activism. But he's also been spending that time and much of the previous 15 years, to be honest, developing an adaptation of the 1999 detective novel Motherless Brooklyn by Jonathan Lethem. Finally, late last year, the film was finished and premiered at Telluride in September. It really is a passion project for Norton, who produced, wrote and stars in it, along with a cavalcade of recognisable faces, many of whom have worked with Norton in the past. That address book got quite a workout in the production of Motherless Brooklyn. It's the story of a small-time private eye in New York in the late 1950s. Norton's character, Lionel Esrog, works for a father figure like character, Frank Minna, played by Bruce Willis. Lionel and a colleague, played by Ethan Soupley, are tailing Minna after a meeting that could go wrong actually does. They lose him on the far side of the Brooklyn Bridge when the guys who have Minna can use an official lane and they have to wait for the tolls. By the time they catch up, Minna has been shot with his own gun and they are too late to get him to the emergency room. The rest of the film is about Esrog's quest to find out why Minna was killed and find him some kind of justice. On the way, he discovers layers of corruption and marginalised communities being forced out of their homes in the name of redevelopment and progress.
0: How many parks do you think have been built in the city since he's been commissioner? 255. How many of those in Harlem, you think? One, you build a new beach for the people, but the ones with no cars, the poor ones, the black and brown ones, how are they gonna get to the parks and beaches? Public bus. Guess how high they've just built the overpasses on the new parkway. One foot too low for a bus to clear. Come on. look. Forget whether it's discrimination. The federal government and the city are being scammed. There's supposed to be relocation services. Companies got a $2 million contract to handle it, but nobody even answers the phone. Call the city, they say these folks are on the list for the new public housing, but then it never gets built.
2: You know more than any secretary I ever met in my life.
0: Secretary? Who told you that? I got a law degree, you know. I'll pass the bar first time I sit, too.
2: Okay then, sorry.
0: How are you gonna write about it all if you don't even take a note?
2: What, two million for relocation services, bridges a foot too low for the buses, one out of 255 parks, 15 million in property for 500k, 200,000 people in Port Green alone? That? I never forget anything, believe me, like, not a single word.
1: Now, the interesting character trait that S. ROG has is Tourette's Syndrome, that neurodiverse disorder that prompts a person to blurt inappropriate comments and other socially awkward tics. While Norton's Esrog has to explain himself to strangers, it's interesting the situations he finds himself in where the disorder is relieved. It emerges as a response to stress, but as the film goes on and Esrog finds himself as a central player in the investigation, his confidence and self-worth grows, and the effects of the syndrome diminish. He's also a bit of a savant, never forgetting a detail, remembering what everyone around him says. It's very helpful for a private detective, you might say. The original novel was set in the present day, but Norton's adaptation, from the very first time he decided to work on it, is relocated to the 1950s. His argument was that the hard-boiled gumshoe world of private investigators and the old school dialogue would have sounded out of place in the here and now, but it also allows him to drive that investigation into the very real world of New York City planning Inspired by a famous book from the 1970s called *The Power Broker* by Robert Caro.
0: Here's your next headline: No expressway will be the world's biggest parking lot. What? Why? Because cars are a cancer, and roads make them metastasize, not shrink. We need trains, but he's killing the trains. Why? Almost with the why. Because he doesn't control the revenues from the trains. He controls the tolls for the bridges and roads. Borough Authority, You know what an authority is? No. Neither did anyone else. He invented it. A fourth branch of government, a shadow branch, all controlled by him, meaning he controls everything, but nobody voted for him, and they can't vote him out. Wait, 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 what, what could stop him? Almost nothing. And he's more dangerous now than ever. Why now? Because the of vestiment votes on his highway and slum clearance plans this week, so he's bullying everyone into submission. He's the most powerful man in the history of the city. He's an autocratic Caesar. But nobody realises that they are just all walking around calm as Hindu cows, thinking they live in a democracy. So what could happen? Are you going to write about this or what?
1: The Power Broker is a biography of the famous New York City planner Robert Moses, lightly fictionalised here as Moses Randolph by Alec Baldwin. Moses was the unelected power behind New York development for 40 years. He built parks, expressways, beach resorts, and two world's fairs. But the power broker lifted the lid on the corporate grift and underlying racism that drove Moses' developments, and the film adds a layer of family scandal too. Also featuring in the film is a version of the resistance to Moses, a character called Gabby Horowitz, played by Cherry Jones and based on Jane Jacobs, who campaigned to try and save Greenwich Village from an expressway at around the time this film is set. In fact, there's a sequence set around a famous demonstration at Washington Square Park that also featured in a recent episode of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But I digress. At two hours and twenty minutes, Motherless Brooklyn goes on a few too many detours to be really effective, as if Norton wants to honour all the research that he's done. The film wants to remind you of another great film about post war corruption, Chinatown. But Norton's style behind the camera is nowhere near Polanski, even if his collaborators in the costume and art departments go all out to recreate New York in the finest of detail.
2: When I was a boy, how you know, many bridges there were on and off Manhattan Island? Two. Shitty little train trestle here in the Brooklyn Bridge, and when you cross that, you were stepping over manure much of the way. People mostly scuttled into New York off of docks like rats. I built that, and that, and that, and that. And now people vault over rivers on the spans and parkways of Olympus. Olympic rat, man. Sorry. There's some pretty bridges, I'll give you that. Thank you.
1: Motherless Brooklyn is rated M for language and adult themes and is available to rent or buy, so far at least, on either Apple or Microsoft's digital platforms. The rental is seven ninety nine and purchase is twenty four ninety nine. Record deal?
2: Two years after you graduated here. Mm-hmm.
1: How? I just kept
0: writing songs, man. It's all about the songs. Write what you care about, what you're afraid of. Whatever it is, it needs to be truth. Is that what you write about, the truth?
1: Brother, I write love songs to God.
0: Mostly to God. Sometimes to a girl. (laughs) I'm writing writing one right now for a girl, and this girl, man, she is... So, yeah, write what you love. Yeah, get after it. Hasten the day. What does that mean? You know, a day with no more pain, no suffering every tear wiped away our music pulls that closer so hasten the day
1: the first film i saw in a cinema after they reopened post-lockdown was on a sunday morning and it's probably only fitting that it was a film made primarily for christian audiences Although the irony of me being able to watch a Christian film on a Sunday morning at the same time Christians were restricted from gathering in worship at the same time is not lost on me. I still believe is the inspirational true story of a successful Christian rock star named Jeremy Camp, who's been a fixture on the scene for nearly 20 years fans of his will already be well acquainted with the story here because he still tells it at every show. It's the story of his first marriage to Melissa Henning, who passed away from ovarian cancer at the ridiculously young age of 21. They met at Bible College in California while he was just starting out as a songwriter. But it was her falling ill that prompted him to pop the question. In her hospital bed, according to the movie. And it was the power of his music and the prayers that music prompted in his fans that delivered her a temporary cure, again, according to the film.
2: Hey, what are you doing tonight?
1: Tonight? it oh, depends. There's lots of stuff
2: I could be doing, really. A lot of things. Oh, okay. Well, if you find yourself free at 8, I'll be at the beach, Oceanside Pier. You, uh, you know, stop on by. It's a date. What? No. It's not a... not a date. Really? Because you literally just asked me out, just right over here we'll see oh yeah and you should um you should you should bring your guitar as well
0: okay it's
1: a date
2: not a
0: date
1: (laughs) camp is played by kiwi actor kj arpa best known as archie on the tv series riverdale he's much better looking than the actual jeremy camp which is not uncommon in these approved biography situations Melissa is played by 29-year-old Britt Robertson, a 20-year Hollywood veteran, and it's not her fault that the ravages of cancer are sanitized to the extent that she can't show off all of her acting chops. The film is more interested in the romance of the situation than the ugly dramatic reality of it. There's an interesting combination of actors playing Camp's parents. The Academy Award nominee Gary Sanisi, one of Hollywood's best and most right-wing actors, plays his dad, along with Shania Twain, who doesn't sing in this picture. Once you've got to what you think is the dramatic climax of the film... We get another 25 to 30 minutes of Camp's recovery and how he learned to use the tragedy of Melissa's death to add more meaning to the songs he was writing for that faith-based audience, something that the film suggests he was struggling with before he met her. After she passes, he discovers a cache of her letters and journal entries hidden in his guitar. She's literally talking to him from beyond the grave, from heaven itself, if you like.
0: I remember I prayed and prayed in this room. For Josh to be born healthy. It didn't happen. And you prayed for so long for your ministry. Still nothing. Dad, I begged God to heal Melissa.
1: What am I supposed to do with that? Films like this are pretty much reviewer proof. If I'm too critical, it could easily be seen as criticism of the faith that underpins it, but we review films where we're not the core audience all the time. The trick is to try and rise above it. I can't pretend that I'm not detached from the core message, or even a little bit cynical about the motion picture and pop music industry's ability to profit from these communities. But the messages are wholesome, and the performances are sincere. Camp's music all sounds the same to me, as it also sounds like every bit of anthemic Christian rock I've ever heard. But KJ Apa does his own singing and he's got talent, and you can see that he's got a big future ahead of him. The camera loves him. I'm intrigued about what his next choices are going to be after family fair like Riverdale and this. A few years ago,
2: I met a girl named Melissa. She is and always will be the love of my life. Melissa died with this incomprehensible, selfless faith. She was always reaching for heaven. And I believe she finally touched it. I believe she finally touched it and she had to tell me that there would be another day with no more pain, with no more tears, with no more sorrow, another day where I would get to see her again. I know I'm not the only one hurting here today. She told me that if just one person's life was changed by her story, then it would have all been worth it. Just one. So this one's for her.
1: I still believe is rated PG and is playing in select cinemas in most New Zealand regions now.
0: You know there's been a change of plan. He's to be buried at sea. Sea burial is very complicated. We're sailors. We do all the time. To other people. Well, we can't. The coroner must be informed on a licence granted by the Minister of Fisheries. Fisheries? He's not a haddock. A boat is needed with insurance to take the mourners. I'm the only one. And a minister. The designated burial site is miles away. It's an organisational nightmare. All it needs is timber and a bit of dignity. It can't cost that much. About 100,000 kroner.
1: What? One final oddity this week is a film that's been sitting on a shelf somewhere for nearly 10 years. It's called All at Sea, and at least one of its stars has been dead for nearly six years. All at sea was Hollywood legend Lauren Bacall's second-to-last on-screen performance. And she's one of several high-profile and high-quality actors who seem to be enjoying themselves with material that is, frankly, beneath them. But that begs a question, doesn't it? Ask most actors whether there is any such thing as material that is beneath them and they'll laugh in your face. I remember that great quote from Sir Michael Caine when asked whether he'd even seen his own performance in Jaws the Revenge. He replied... I've never seen it, by all accounts it's terrible, but I have seen the house that it built, and it is terrific. All at sea is a British-Norwegian co-production that is located in the picturesque west of Norway for no apparent reason, and set in a retirement home that contains several Brits and one Texan, again for no apparent reason. All of the other characters are Norwegian, but speak English all the time, for no apparent reason. The great Brian Cox plays Wally, a former merchant seaman and now aging booze smuggler in a small Norwegian community. His captain, known as Skip, has passed away and wanted to be buried at sea. So commences a slapstick comedy involving body snatching, an imperious ruler over the retirement home as the free-spirited Wally's nemesis, a former English colonel, played by James Fox, who becomes Wally's unwilling new roommate, and the twinkly Texan oil man's widow, played by Miss Bacall, who goads them all into insurrection.
0: Oh, he was such a lovely man. All hearts.
1: I know. So big at bust but he'd appreciate the irony. Most of who the
0: house before it was struck by lightning. We'll remember what a fine structure it was. I will remember Kitty Canvin too was inside it when it struck. It only singed her knickers. A of fame came out of there like the Porsche
1: from hell. All at sea is the broadest of broad comedies, with fart jokes and fat jokes, and the Norwegian cast don't really look like they know what's going on. But Cox gives it heaps, and slowly the rest of the on-screen talent rises to meet his energy. Even-handed the lamest old antique jokes, Cox does his best to sell them, and the rest of the film is a mostly amiable outing in that genre that always does so well here, old people misbehaving. It's reassuring that even after seven weeks of cinema-free lockdown, some things never change. This was the number two film at the Kiwi box office last weekend.
0: General, 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 you mustn't look on this old age thing as an end. It's not an end, it's a beginning. As much of a beginning as any other time in your life. It
1: only ends when you look back with regret and remember the day when you almost,
0: this way, the big adventure is always waiting.
1: All at Sea is rated M and is playing at select cinemas around the country now. And that's our programme for another week. We're listening to a track called Daily Battles from the soundtrack of the film Motherless Brooklyn. It's written by Tom York from Radiohead. There's a very different version of it with his vocals also featured in the film. And this version is performed by Wynton Marsalis with Joe Farnsworth, Russell Hall, Isaiah J. Thompson and Jerry Weldon. This week we say goodbye to far too many cinema luminaries. It's been a sad parade of obituaries recently. Fred Willard, the comic genius who lit up films like Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, and Spinal Tap was 86 years old. The French screen legend Michel Piccoli has also passed away at the age of 94. In his 70-year career, he worked with literally anyone who was anyone. Renoir, Godard, Buñuel, Hitchcock, Demi, Varda, Melville, Tavernier, Chabrol, Mal Oliveira. You could indulge in a perfect history of European cinema just by watching piccoli films. And, much younger and with so much more still to offer, the wonderful Lynn Shelton, whose indie comedies poked generous fun at male insecurities and adult relationships. Check out Hump Day and Your Sister's Sister as a starting point, but her fingerprints were on so much, including a lot of the television episodes you love. I'm Dan Slevin and you can find me on Twitter as atdancelevin, that's all one word and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen I'll be back with some more suggestions for viewing at home and at the movies at the same time next week